The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Sounds a little high. Is it, does it sound a little loud for you guys? No echo? Okay. I hear a little reverberation. Thanks. So welcome, everyone. Um, this is the second week of the Beginner's Practice Group, which we started last week as a way, way to continue to offer support to people who have taken the introductory mindfulness series. But um, I think maybe uh, a third of you from last week hadn't taken that course, and that's fine. You can just sit in on any of these classes um, as you see uh, um, that you want to come. You're welcome to. So the way we structure these is to do a little bit of review of uh, one of the subjects of mindfulness that we covered in the intro series. So last week we did a review of mindfulness of the breath, and then we introduced the Four Noble Truths, um, and we did a little bit of a breakout session and had you guys discuss a couple of questions. So this week we'll do a review of mindfulness of the body, and then we'll introduce the Eightfold Path, and we'll have another breakout session. So um, just to start off with, just like to see if there's any questions about practice. So most of you have been practicing probably six or seven weeks now. If you have any discussions about or questions about your formal sitting practice or any of the material. Okay. So we'll have time for questions later. So um, for me, I think it's a little bit important to do a review um, only because this isn't the kind of practice that you do a five-week course and bam, you've got it and then your life is all set (laughs) and you understand everything. It's the kind of thing that takes a lot of time. Um, It's an introduction to a lot of things, so maybe some things will settle and some things will make no sense at all. And we say if they make no sense at all, leave it be and then just pick up on the thing that, that does resonate with you and what does make sense to practice. But it's kind of a radical shift from the way we normally kind of view our experiences in the world and offers us uh, some practice or training to look at the things that are causing us some trouble, where we get into some areas of stress. So uh, the way we view things or experience is uh, life will have... um, a lot of uh, joys and a lot of suffering. So uh, in this practice, what we tend to look at is how do we meet our experience so that we might uh, take a closer look at where we might cause additional suffering or where there's the suffering is a little optional. And a lot of that comes in our habits of mind and our thinking and our judgments, our criticisms, our ideas and opinions, um, our likes and dislikes, and how strongly we attach to them. So in this practice, we might start off with mindfulness of breath, uh, just so that we learn how to come into the present moment. And to uh, we live our lives, kind of, uh, we should be living our lives in the present moment, on a moment-to-moment experience, but some of us, we notice that we kind of live our lives in our minds, half the time thinking about something that's already happened, reliving it, trying to fix it or redo it, or uh, in fantasy or kind of projecting out into the future with a lot of planning um, 
and things like that. So uh, a lot of times our bodies are someplace and our minds are elsewhere doing other things. So this practice helps to bring the mind and body together. So kind of unify them in order that we uh, live more uh, fully each moment that our mind is with the body. And in that clear seeing and in that present awareness, then we're able to see more clearly where we might get into trouble, where we have areas of attachment that are causing us additional suffering. So doing a couple of of different things. And so whatever your goals may be, whether it is just to relieve a little bit of stress, uh, um, have a little bit more calm in your life, or really um, move towards uh, what we say uh, a lot of liberation, or enlightenment, uh, then this path, uh, you can take it and use it a little or a lot. So uh, it can be useful for however uh, it works in your life. So um, we come to the practice of mindfulness, and uh, why is mindfulness so important? And um, for me, it took quite a while for me to realize, well, I thought I was pretty mindful. I thought I'm living in the present moment. Um, And it was only when I took a closer look, let's say during a formal sitting practice, that I got to see how many times my mind would wander off into thought. And I might be lost in thought for a few minutes to 20 minutes before I realized I was lost in thought and I would come back to the breath or the body. So uh, uh, it um, can be useful just to identify where... Uh, where we spend a lot of our energy. Are we in our heads a lot? Are we worrying a lot? Are we reliving things? Are we um, in fantasy or spacing out? Um, And so it gives us a tool to kind of see where we can come back and rest in uh, something that's happening here and now. The breath is happening here and now, so we do a little bit of training on that. And then we kind of expand out so that um, we can be uh, more fully in our bodies And our bodies can really tell us a lot about what's going on in our lives. So um, today's practice will be trying to uh, become a little bit more mindful of what's happening in the body. So I wanted to read a little bit from uh, just what mindfulness is, the practice of mindfulness. is this way of trying to bring an enhanced capacity of awareness or attention on what's happening. So, this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Um, In the practice of right mindfulness, the mind is trained to remain in the present, open, quiet, and alert, contemplating the present event. All judgments and interpretations have to be suspended, or if they occur, just registered and dropped. The task is simply to note whatever comes up just as it is occurring, riding the changes of events in a way a surfer rides the waves on the sea. The whole process is a way of coming back into the present, of standing in the here and now without slipping away, without getting swept away by the tides of distracting thoughts. So, um, I thought it's important to put a little bit Uh, more emphasis on what mindfulness is, uh, regardless of what we're choosing as the object. So we use the breath because for most people it's relatively easy to access, and it's happening in the present and it's happening in the body. And then we'll expand out to include the body sensations in the body, uh, and then 
in the intro course, we went on to include emotions and thinking. So, um, having read that, uh, it might be helpful to distinguish, we notice when we're setting, um, that mindfulness is not that process of thinking or that, that process of commentary. It says it's um, resting in the here and now. So with the breath, it's simply the sensations of breathing in and out. It's not the commentary about the breath. It's there's something wrong with my breath. It's too short. I can't breathe right. This all this extra commentary. It's seeing if we can let that go if we see it, and train the mind to just rest in in the simplicity of breathing. With the body, it would be more like the sensations that occur in the body. So for many of you, if you've been sitting for a while, you might notice there's areas of discomfort that arise, especially if this posture is new to you. So there might be a little bit of tension around the knees or some stress in the back or a little bit of discomfort in the shoulders or some of you who have injuries or some kind of uh, um, condition, then there might be a little bit more going on in the body. So um, to the best of our ability, we train our minds to simply be with those sensations without getting caught in some story about them, without the commentary, without the... um, um, if only that would go away, then maybe I could actually meditate. Or um, if, uh, if this doesn't go away, then I need to go to the doctor. <laughs> or, or whatever is the commentary around some kind of sensation. So it gives us many opportunities to just keep coming back. So having said that, I do realize that there's a lot of people who've had a, a lot of, some trauma in their lives. And a lot of that trauma is held in the body. So sometimes sitting quietly for some time, well, um, it can be a little bit uncomfortable. A lot of people don't want to be in their bodies because it means they have to feel something. It means that some unpleasant sensation or feeling or memory will come up and surface. So um, we do say this uh, takes some um, time and it takes uh, maybe very gradual for people to get accustomed to being in their bodies. Uh, and uh, to also recognize uh, how to take care of yourself if that happens. So we have offered this place. Hopefully you guys feel safe enough here. If you have some discomfort or you have some um, pain or something, um, please take care of yourselves, and you're welcome to lay down if you can't sit comfortably. Um, And we ask, we're giving ourselves a challenge, so if we can sit quietly, if we can sit still... But if there's something really, if there's a lot more tightness and contraction over something that's going in the body, then it's no problem to simply move um, and to take care of yourself and shift your posture. So, um, any questions? Okay. So then we're going to do... um, uh, guided meditation. Oh, yes, yes. Shinkwan, while you were... You can't hear this, right? I can or hear it. Um, you can. While you were speaking, it occurred to me, would you want to um, provide some guidance? What if somebody does have a sensation in their body that makes them feel really uncomfortable? They can shift their posture, but maybe I'll add... Another thing is maybe to open your eyes, too, because then you kind of get oriented mm-hmm. to where you are in this space. Maybe another thing is you can um, feel your feet 
where your feet are on the ground. Not for everybody, but usually like the feet can be kind of a stabilizing idea of what's happening. So I just wanted to offer that as something. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, so we um, ask that you take a comfortable seated posture that allows uh, for some energy, a little bit of alertness. If you're sitting on the floor, your knees are lower than your hips. If you're sitting in the chair, just seeing if you can put a little uh, maybe support in the back and seeing if you can have your upper body um, free instead of sitting back like this. might be comfortable for the first few minutes, but you might notice sitting back like that will put additional strain elsewhere in the body. Sitting uh, straight actually gives you the most support with your feet on the floor. So, uh, and we gently close our eyes, and if you, get, if you find that you're falling asleep, then you can open your eyes. You can also stand up briefly and then sit back down if you need the energy. So gently closing the eyes. So we take a a few deep breaths just to settle, connect with the breathing, and come into the body. You can take a few long, slow, deep inhales and exhales. And then seeing if on the exhale it's possible to relax a little bit there's any tension or stress that you're holding that's easy to breathe out, just seeing if you can let it go. And we're bringing the mind to the body seeing if the mind is wandering off and other thoughts, seeing if we can let them go, let our thoughts relax, just put them down for now, and settle, or let the attention settle on the, on the sensations of breathing in and out. The breath doesn't have to be any particular way. We don't need to force the breath to do anything else. Just let it happen in its natural rhythm. And let the mind and attention come to meet the body. Maybe quickly doing a body scan, just seeing if there's any area in the forehead or eyes, if there's any tension, seeing if that can be relaxed.
noticing if there's any tension in the jaw or mouth, seeing if you can just relax that. Letting the shoulders rest in their sockets and letting the breath kind of fill the chest and belly and then let those relax as well. And seeing if the experience of breathing can be a little more intimate than you normally experience it. It's not thinking about breathing, but sensing the breath. feeling it from the inside out. Noticing if the mind has wandered off in thought, then just gently bringing the attention back to the body and the breath and the breath. Seeing if you can let go of any commentary that comes up. And if it's helpful to do a very quiet noting in and out or to stay with your breath.
seeing if you can get a sense of what it's like to be in the body. To feel the body more globally rather than one specific sensation. Each time the mind wanders off, just gently bringing it back, seeing in that moment how mindfulness places the attention back in the here and now. No need to judge or criticize, make stories or commentary, or add anything extra. So now, gently, see if we can let go of the breath, the attention on the breath. And now place the attention on the most compelling 
sensation in the body. So whatever is the strongest sensation in the body, just gently turn the attention, let it settle there. Again, no need for commentary or story, judgment. Just seeing what awareness does. We turn it towards the sensation in the body. Notice how it moves or shifts or changes. And when the attention starts to get weaker on that sensation in the body, then let it come rest back in the breath until the next strong sensation comes up. And now returning the attention back to the breathing, letting it again settle on the body as it simply breathes in and out. And 
And seeing if the quality of that attention can have some energy in there so that we can hang in there for the next few minutes. Really meet the breath. Be with the breath. Very easy, relaxed way. the sound of the bell, you might take a, a few deep breaths to come out of meditation and open your eyes when you're ready. So we spend a lot of time on practicing mindfulness because um, without this practice, without being able to see clearly what's going on, then we don't have a lot of room to um, make wiser choices in our life and to see where we might um, be attached to habits or patterns or things that are are no longer helpful for us. So... um, It may seem simple to just have this instruction to be with the breath, but because most of the times our minds are running at a much faster speed and doing much more interesting things, it's not quite quite as easy uh, as as it sounds. So it takes a lot of practice. So um, we really do emphasize the trying to let go of commentary, trying to let go of judgments and criticisms, um, to expect to stay with something for... 20 minutes um, consistently, moment by moment, especially if we've just started, is a little unrealistic. Where the practice comes in is each moment you notice you're kind of lost in thought and come back, then that's a very important moment of mindfulness. It's a very important moment of awareness to know how easily it is to get uh, caught in something that's caught your attention. Uh, And the difference in the quality of being lost in thought or caught in some juicy thought or or distraction, and uh, what it's like to be uh, deeply present. So we kind of say, kind of like training a puppy, we try and do it in this gentle way, or we kind of say, if the attention you can give is like when you're listening to a really dear friend, and they're having something that you really want to be there for and listen to, then we do that, we practice that quality of care and attention and listening um, uh, towards ourselves and towards whatever is happening. So um, when we do this practice of the body, um, I forgot to mention whether it's pleasant or unpleasant sensation. Uh, We hopefully can 
choose whatever's the strongest. Uh, for a lot of us, it's uh, when there's something unpleasant, it's a little bit more easy to notice because it's painful. Um, so there might be some... Uh, it's like developing this little bit of an art form. How much attention or the kind of attention you give to something so that it doesn't get more contracted and more difficult to be with. So sometimes we put a laser focus on something and it helps us see it more clearly as it moves, shifts, changes, um, vibrates, um, does whatever it does, um, and then goes away. But sometimes if we look too closely at something, we might notice it gets bigger, stronger, more painful, and we get more contracted. So then we say, can we take a more spacious look at something, open up the whole body, and see that as something that's going on in the body as a whole. Um, And then we're also embodied, we're also present, and it's just a part of something that's going on in the rest of our body. So it is kind of a skill to see how much much attention, the type of attention, uh, and how kind of relaxed we can be around that. So uh, are there any questions around applying mindfulness to the breath or applying mindfulness to the body. Do you have anything to add? (laughs) I will just add, I was thinking like um, how nice your voice was. (laughs) It was nice in in your explanations. I was appreciating it, so... But I don't know if I have anything to add. I think that um, I'll say that when I first started practicing, paying so much attention to my body seemed like an unusual thing to do. I had been spending a lifetime kind of in my mind thinking about things. I was convinced that was the way I was going to solve all my problems, every problem everywhere. And it never really occurred to me that if I just paid attention to kind of some of the physical sensations, that somehow that that would lead to my being present and that could lead to a different type of answers, a different way of solving problems, a different way of looking at things, or maybe even softening that whole idea that all problems must be solved now also. So it's, uh, it's a really powerful practice. But we do want to open it up for questions. If anybody has questions, if you've been uh, meditating. And we just ask that you use the mic so that everybody can hear. This is a pretty simple, basic one, which is uh, how long did it take you to get used to this kind of posture? You mean without excruciating pain? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, I've I usually sit in a chair, but I, we were both just trying this out tonight. And what I found was uh, I had a fair amount of discomfort in various parts of my body. And then at some point, um, I think this whole part of my leg was numb, and so it didn't bother me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but that was just a little bit troubling. Uh, so I just wonder, you know, is it weeks mm-hmm. or months or... I think it really depends on each person and, and how physically fit they are and how you know how they are accustomed to sitting on the floor. So there are a couple of different things that are, are is that, that happen. Number one, the posture is probably new for some people, but it is very stable. So I have to say, if you do get accustomed to it, there's a lot of stability in this posture, and you can sit very comfortably in this posture probably more than any other posture for periods of time. So this is why we 
um, kind of get used to it. The foot falling asleep is probably not such a big deal because it doesn't cause lasting damage or something. You just have to wait a few minutes for the blood to keep to, before you stand up. So that's the part we say take care of. Um, also, there's also a lot of areas of discomfort that may become apparent as when you sit still because um, through our lifetimes we may hold things in our shoulders, in our gut, in our chest because there's more tension or stress in our lives and we won't notice it until we sit and relax. And then all that uh, starts to come and become apparent. So <clears throat> this practice can be very useful so that we don't... Um, it comes up as it's kind of needs to come up. We don't need to fix it or do anything of it. It takes a little bit of skill to 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 sit with it and meet it. So um, I can't say that it's easy. I have to say the, the instruction is watch out for the story behind the pain because that can really make the pain bigger. When I used the same, I used excruciating pain because the pain wasn't so bad, but my panic around the pain was tremendous. And that's the part that I really got to see clearly. And once I got to see the panic component and how much more it added to it, how much more con- contracted I became, then it just became a series of sensations that my body actually, when relaxed, uh, weren't that big of a deal. And it's, it settled into. So does that answer your question? Yeah, that helps. Thanks. Okay. Yes. Did you have anything to add to? Um, and I'll just go ahead and let's just say, on worst case scenario, I'll confess, let's just say that since I've been here sitting, my mind has been doing something else. What I want to ask you is when you say, um, you know, being conscious of the body and all that, are you, are you saying just when we're meditating or when we're, I mean, like you were talking about, oh, when you're listening to a friend, you want to be present and for that person at that time, and I'm like, you know, and are you talking about when we're encountering things, when I get tense up because I'm talking to somebody and I'm afraid or I'm nervous or something and I notice that, or are you talking about just sensations when we're meditating? I guess I maybe I missed something and my mind has wandered. So, <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, everybody's talking about pain in this, and I'm like, well, that's, you know, I don't know if, I mean, to me that's just, normal, I've got to adjust to it, but are you talking about mm. that in terms of meditating and seeing where we're, we're meditating, where I we're feeling it. it in our body? I Is get that it. what you're saying? Well, I give the instruction for the specific meditation, mm-hmm. because we do, we're, this course is kind of based on doing, establishing a daily practice, mm-hmm. um, which is helpful, because um, uh, sometimes we can't see very clearly in the midst of a very busy life. Mm-hmm. And so we're giving ourselves a little bit of a break, kind of quiet time in order to see a little bit more clearly where we're not, we don't have to do 10 things at one time. All we have to do is sit. So uh, having said that, it's very useful throughout our lives, no matter what we're doing, but we need to establish a little bit of a foundation of practice. So for a lot of people, having a daily sit is really beneficial. And it's, they may not notice a big Big changes or insights may not happen during that 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. But having over time established a a practice, then it becomes a little more... um, uh, easier to come into the body when we're out of the body. We have more practice 
because we've been sitting and practicing, the hundred times we've got lost in thought and come back, that's a hundred times we're practicing coming back to the present moment into the body. And if we don't do that, then we're just kind of, like you said, off and doing whatever, whatever. Then are you saying that, you know, establishing like a baseline, this is, you know, when I'm trying to be calm and meditating and all that, I've got my baseline, but then, I don't know, maybe I'm missing something. When you're out in the real world, or let's say when you're participating or you're out there, you know, and trying to be present, I mean, is it kind of like a comparison, like, you know, oh, I'm feeling this kind of stuff again, or normally I feel this level, and now I notice, you know, I'm, I'm feeling the same kind of aches and pains, if you will, um, or body sensations. Is, that, is there anything to compare, to take with you forward into your lives that, you know, you try to be present? Um, my guess is it looks a little different for everybody. Uh, so when you when we have more experience to be present in the body, it's much more natural to then to just come and rest in the present moment. And we offer a lot of different exercises throughout the day where you can keep practicing, whether you're waiting in line or in the car or doing that, or having a heated discussion before you say something to come back into the body, right? To take a few deep breaths. Yes, so this is... it's. Right. Uh, slow. slow, right. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. Is it kind of like, okay, well, I'm normally this way anyway, or, or no, I can tell I'm elevated because I'm this. Right, this, so, right. You know. So it, there's no line between this formal practice and daily life. But we are saying, um, if we give ourselves half a chance and establish this formal daily practice, we might be more readily easy. It's more easy to access the present moments more easily access um, some calm, some presence of mind so that we make wiser choices in our lives. And did you want to add something? Yeah, maybe uh, I'll add something. Um, Something that for me that was really helpful was the analogy of weight training. If we want to get stronger, we lift weights. Right? And we do it repetitively. We go to the gym. We maybe have a coach that tells us how or gives us the instructions exactly how to do it. We lift weights. And our muscles become stronger. And they become stronger whether we are in the gym lifting the weights or whether we're just bringing the groceries home or whether we're just picking up our children or the dog. So it's the same thing that we're kind of training to be more present in the moment and then the training that we're doing here on the cushion carries over to all areas of our life. That's kind of what Shinquan meant when um, there's less of a distinction between on the cushion and off the cushion, that a line starts to get more and more blurry the more you practice. Um, so um, just another thing I wanted to add. During that meditation, um, uh, I remember when I would have to go into sensation in the body, it was... Um, there was a lot of discomfort, so it was difficult to stay with anything for more than a few moments at a time. So it does take a little skill to know when to back off from something and it gets too tight. And when there's some stability of mind, you might have noticed we spent about 15 minutes just seeing if we can settle in the breath before I opened it up to some sensation in the body. So staying with the breath for a certain amount of time really is a foundational practice. It really does offer a little bit more stability so that we can settle on one thing, on, on the breath, rather than a million different things. And so we can maybe stay for a few more minutes without contracting, without the commentary. The commentary is, I wish that would go away. 
or I don't like that, or if that didn't, only if that didn't happen, I could meditate. So those are all the extra things that we might see more and more clearly that we learn how to drop so that we can just actually be with something um, in its simplicity. So, um, so hopefully that's clear. We do might say the same things over and over again a million times, but, you know, I practiced in Asia, and there's a <laughs> they repeat the same thing a <laughs> hundred times. I mean, it's the repetition you learn, so <laughs> it's not because we think you don't get it. It's because if you hear it over and over again, sometimes it might at one point make a little sense, more sense at another point. So... Um, so Diana is going to um, introduce um, the Eightfold Path. Thank you, Shinkwan. Can you hear me okay? So part of um, our intention in these beginners practice group is to review the meditation instructions as well as to put a meditation in context of other teachings, um, Buddhist teachings or a Buddha center. But we're, we're not uh, so interested in that you have to become Buddhist or believe Buddhist things. This is just uh, tools of practice uh, in our lives that um, I know I've found useful and helpful and I'm happy to share them with you. So I offer this in a spirit of take what is useful and leave behind what isn't useful. So I'm going to start with a story. So there was a woodsman who was in the woods and he saw the hint of a trail or a path. He was curious about it, so he cleared some of the brush. He thought, oh yes, indeed, there is a path here. Maybe he had a machete with him and he he was walking through and follows the path, clears the spider webs, the brambles, the overgrowth, and follows it around the corner through the woods and comes upon a city, an abandoned city that is also overgrown, but it looks like it was beautiful. And he walks around in this in, uh, the city, this abandoned capital city, and sees the beautiful architecture and and feels really excited about, wow, what an incredible discovery to have found the city. So he goes back to tell the king and the queen, I saw this path, I cleared the way. Here, follow me, I'll show you. You can go to this uh, amazing capital city. That right now maybe looks a little bit overgrown, but we can... Um, clean it up. So the king and the queen go with the woodsman to the city. And they agree that this is a wonderful find, the path, and a wonderful city. And they clean it up, refurbish whatever one does when they find a city in the woods, and they inhabit it. They decide to move there. And more and more people move to the city. So now there's this wonderful town that the woodsman had found. So in this story, the Buddha is like the woodsman, somebody who found a path to a wonderful city. And we are like the king and the queen. 
we have a certain nobility, we have a certain agency, we have a certain, I don't know, sense of, uh, I, I like this word nobility. And the um, Buddha, his teaching is to show us this path to the city where um, one can abide, one can live. I kind of like this story. I can imagine in ancient India that um, maybe this wasn't so unusual to find abandoned paths in the woods. They didn't have paved roads and things at that time. But I also like the idea that um, that we are the royalty. We're not the ones that are... We're not children that don't know any better, but we are adults and that have just been shown something that wasn't clear to us before kind of like that uh, idea about it. But this idea of a path, um, the analogy isn't perfect. Because one way that it breaks down is a path is usually something that's outside of us, right? That we see in front of us. And in this, the path of practice doesn't exist unless there's somebody walking on it, right? Unless there's somebody practicing. So it's not, the, it's not a path that's out there, It's a path that um, exists when we walk on it. So another way that this analogy perhaps isn't perfect is the way that I told this story was, oh, he found the path, he followed it and went to the city. It made it sound like A, it was linear, and B, it was pretty straightforward and easy. It's not always linear and it's not always straightforward and easy. But it's the idea that, that there is a way, that, that there is uh, choices that we can make that keep us on the path or off the path. And you may ask, well, so what is this city? Like, what is this analogy of a city? In the um, ancient Buddhist teachings, they would say that was nirvana or nibbana. But I would say that there's lots of ways that we can hold this, we can think about it in kind of our secular, mundane, everyday lives without having to have um, a high spiritual ideal, which we can have as well or in addition to. But maybe some other ways to think about this uh, where we're going is um, just to decrease the stress and suffering in our lives and the lives of the people around us. I imagine they talked about this last week when we use that word suffering. Um, it's kind of like Buddhist English, which um, translates a word which, when you hear that word suffering, you can think just stress or um, discontent, you know, wishing things were otherwise, feeling like it's not quite right, or um, dissatisfaction. So suffering... The word um, can have like really um, some terrible mental anguish that often um, visits us, perhaps, or just that slight sense that something isn't quite right. You can have that as suffering. So the city can be a place where we decrease, where there's less suffering for both ourselves and others, and also increased fulfillment of our potential, of our emotional, physical, mental potential. Maybe it's um, increased knowledge, self-knowledge about what makes us tick and what makes us um, uh, behave the way that we do or um, how can we work with uh, the habits that we have and the way that we are. 
Maybe another way could be um, some changes in our behavior. Maybe we, we uh, wish that we didn't yell at our partner so much or that we didn't get so angry at the other drivers on the road or that um, we weren't mean to the people that report to us at work or, I don't know, I'm just making these up, but maybe there's um, ways that we wish to change our behavior. And this going to the city can help with that. And then lastly, I will say it also can be where we um, are able to care for and serve others and the people around us, not only ourselves, but um, our communities, the people we love, the people that we don't even um, perhaps know, but that we hear about, can help us um, care for and serve others. So that's one way to hold that story about a woodsman finding a path that goes to the city. And then this path, um, for those of you who are familiar to the Buddhist teachings, they love numbers and love lists. So last week was the four noble truths. And the fourth noble truth was that there is a path to the cessation of suffering, which is what I'm describing. And this path is the eightfold path, the noble eightfold path, which has eight elements. But if this is going to be a path that's going to decrease suffering, it has to um, affect all areas of our lives, all domains of our lives, not just um, discomfort when we sit or the irritation we hear at the something on television or the radio, all, all aspects of our lives, then it needs to be holistic. If this is really going to work, if it's really going to decrease suffering, it needs to address different aspects in a, in a holistic way. And one way that we can think about this is these eight elements of the Eightfold Path are broken into three domains. So one domain is our relationships to others. I call this sila in the language of the ancient Buddhists. So specifically, this is um, how do we... um, Yeah, this is funny to start this way with sila. I'm going to start a little bit differently. So one of the domains is sila, how our relationships with others. The next domain is um, mental cultivation. Like we spent some time meditating today. So this idea that we can put our attention where we want to. Today we talk about the breath and the body. But it also extends to can we um, loosen the grip on some recurring thoughts that aren't helpful for us. So that's part of mental cultivation. And then um, the third domain is uh, wisdom, panya. So do we, um, do we have some insight into or understanding of our intentions and the way that kind of the world works, that um, things don't happen randomly, even though sometimes it feels like it or we may not understand exactly um, why they happen, that things happen for a reason. And that's part of um, the wisdom factor, or the wisdom domain. So relationships, mental cultivation, and wisdom, sila, samadhi, panya. There's no reason that you need to know those uh, Pali words. I just like to say them. 
So now I'll go through the, um, the eight lists. And the reason why I got a little bit confused there when I was saying Sila Samaripanya, and then I was going to go through the list, there's, um, when we talk about the Eightfold Path, we have, you know, path factor number one, and path factor two, three, all the way through eight. But the way that the tradition holds them, path factor number one doesn't, isn't in the Sila domain, in the um, relationship with others, even though sila is always first. And I could give a long discourse on why that is, but I'm not going to. So um, I'm going to start with uh, the first path factor. And just because this is an introduction, I'm going to use kind of colloquial language and a way that, uh, a little bit interpretive of a way of how to approach them. There's very um, technical language about exactly what these mean, and the scholars like to talk about it, and the Buddhist practitioners like to talk about it. But tonight I'm going to talk about it as an introduction, a way to think about it, a way to approach it, and a way to investigate it and see if this makes sense for you. Is this something that uh, feels encouraging or inspiring and something you'd like to practice with? So the first factor is right view. And I'm using this word right. um, Again, we kind of are inheriting um, translation choices, just like that word suffering maybe isn't the best. This word right isn't necessarily the best, but just through tradition we use it. So when I say right, I don't want you to think it's the opposite of wrong. There's nothing moralistic about this. There's nothing to say that you must do this. It means right as in appropriate, as in the right tool, as in the, as in the right way to get to the town, that capital city that I described earlier. That's what we mean when we mean by right, appropriate. Some people um, would also like to say the wise way or the skillful way. I'm going to say right because it's kind of my habit and that's the way that I learned it. But I'm going to also try sometimes to say wise and skillful to make sure that we don't fall into that thinking that, um, that it's wrong if, if it's, um, or that it doesn't have a moralistic tone to it, let's say that. Okay, here we go. The first factor, right view. This is the idea that... Um, Basically, that actions have consequences. This isn't a surprise. We all know this. But what makes this be right view is the incredibly thorough application of this idea. If I'm having a particular thoughts, there's, there's a reason. I may not know what the reason is, but there are a reason why those thoughts are. And if I'm having thoughts, there will be consequences of those thoughts. If I say something, there's a reason why I'm saying something. And there will be consequences of what I say. These consequences and these reasons may be banal, they may be mundane, they may be minor, or they may be giant. How many relationships have been really harmed by what has been said? 
right? Just a few words maybe have been um, have really large consequences. And maybe when we hear ourselves say something, we realize, oh, I didn't know I felt that or something. So it's just what makes this right view is this really thorough application that our that um, actions have consequences. Whether those actions are th- um, behaviors, speech, or things that happen in our minds. And then the follow-on to that idea is that we can, um, we're not powerless in this. We can investigate this relationship of why things arise, why things um, um, come about the way that they do. That we can, um, we have agency in this. And um, this kind of chain of events. And part of why we learn meditation and part of why we learn to be in the present moment is because then we can start to have more choices. We can start to see, oh, I actually feel agitated right now. And I remember the last time I felt agitated and I went into my boss's office, I said something that I later regretted. So you can start to see we're just being present in the, mo- in the um, present moment being present in the present moment helps us with having agency and seeing this um, actions have consequences. So the way that I just described that has technical Buddhist terms also as the Four Noble Truths and Karma. So so, um, there's lots of different ways we can look at those truths and I offered this as one way as in our daily life we can um, look at this and examine it and See if this helps us. The second path factor is right intention. It says the idea is like um, to examine what motivates us, what um, causes us to do some of the things that we do. If we believe that our actions arise from consequences or or from things that we did. Well, what, what, why do we do some of these things? And the offering here is that our life generally unfolds better if our intentions are one of goodwill towards others, as opposed to one generally of hatred. You can imagine, right? If you have the intention of hatred, you're, there will be different outcomes if you greet people with that intention rather than one of goodwill. The same with compassion. The same with non-harming. So right intention. The idea for us to investigate what what is our intention? What's motivating us? Do we feel greedy or do we feel generous? Do we feel like we must um, accumulate more or do we feel like, oh, there's actually some um, ease in simplicity? Or... Do we feel like um, we need to show everybody um, how great we are? Or do we feel like we can help support people around us? So those type of intentions. It's a second factor. And those are the wisdom panya domains of the Eightfold Path. And then... um, I'm looking at the time here. Oh, so I'm a little bit. I'm going a little bit slow here. I'll speed it up. So for um, 
sila, the relationships factor, how we are in the world, there's three, in that domain, there's three factors. Um, right speech, right livelihood, and right action. So right speech, are we telling the truth? Not only to others, but also to ourselves. Like what are, what are we really honestly looking at ourselves? And this ties into right intention. We're, when we examine perhaps our inner life, we may find things that are uncomfortable to find. But to just be honest and say, oh, this is okay. I feel greedy right now. I feel like I want more of that. Whatever it is, chocolate cake, money, prestige, something. Right action is um, to not harm others. We don't um, kill others, humans or other living beings. We don't um, take what is not freely given. We're careful with our sexual energy and we don't use sexual misconduct. And we um, don't intoxicate ourselves so that there's heedlessness, so that we can no longer be present in the um, in the present moment. That's four. What am I forgetting? I have all these lists, and right now, because I'm trying to rush, I forgot one. It'll. Oh yes. So speech is in twice, right? It's in right action and right speech. That's right. And then right livelihood is, um, in a way, is our livelihood a way that supports our well-being and the well-being of others? So obvious ways that it's not is if you're an arms dealer, right? And you're somebody that's selling weapons or selling poisons or something like that. But we can also think about this in other ways. Is livelihood something that it keeps us... Um, Calm or agitated? um, Does it our livelihood encourage us to be truthful, or does it encourage us to kind of skirt around the truth? Just some things to examine. And now that um, kind of in the modern day, our lives are so um, interconnected. Often, when we examine that, we'll find that it's not maybe as perfectly crystal clear about our livelihood. And then the practice is just to bring compassion to both ourselves and to anybody else who may be harming in any way with our livelihood. So that's the um, sila portion. And then the mental cultivation, samadhi, is mindfulness, which is what you've been um, learning here, as well as concentration, which is a different type of meditation practice, just a little bit different than mindfulness. We're not going to go into details about that during this course. As well as um, effort. Like, where do we put our energy? Do we, um, can we tell, like, if I put my energy towards this, this is going to lead to more ease and well-being? Or if I put my energy over there, is that going to lead to more troubles, both for myself and others? kind of energy. So energy, mindfulness, and concentration is the mental cultivation factors. So that's a whirlwind tour through the Eightfold Path. (laughs) I would say last week was the Four Noble Truths, and this week is the Eightfold Path. I'd say those are core teachings here at this center. And for Buddhists, there's lots of Buddhisms. We have, you know, our Zen friends and Tibetan friends. And, um, 
they have they approach things maybe a little bit differently with different emphasis and I'll just say here this is an emphasis four noble truths and the eightfold path phew (laughs) (laughs) okay so with that as an introduction we're going to invite you to break up into small groups does that sound like what we should do now into groups of three and we're going to have a a small discussion so if you want to get with two other people and then we'll um, give you a question that you guys can discuss amongst each other Okay, so what we're going to do here is a little bit different than having... So, okay, it's a little bit different than just um, a normal conversation because we're... um, Part of the practice here is to notice um, what comes up when you speak and to to practice listening, too. So we're going to go around the circle... And um, I'll ask you a question in which you'll answer. And the intention here isn't to have like the best story that you can tell or the most um, interesting, compelling thing to say or the most wise thing to say. Just say something simple that arises. And um, it's more for your own practice to just see what happens. It's a... um, an interesting thing to see when we are talking sometimes what um, happens when we um, vocalize things. So earlier I talked about right view and right intention, that um, our actions have consequences and that some of our intentions have consequences. So here's a question, and I'm gonna, we'll, we'll see how the time goes, how the energy is here. I'll probably ask two questions. Here's the first one. What are some views that you hold that have led to dissatisfaction, discomfort, suffering? Here's an example. If only I had such and such, I would be happy. It's an example of a view that perhaps we hold. Or I must be perfect before I can be happy or something. So I just offer those as examples. And then one person will speak, the other will listen, and then the next person will speak, and then um, the third person. And you just go around, often maybe what one person heard says reminds you of something, and then you say something different the second time it goes around. And we'll start with the person with the longest hair and go and counterclockwise. Thank you. Okay, so we'll move on to the second question, which um, is related to the first, perhaps not surprising. So what are some views or intentions that can help 
ease suffering, that can help ease dissatisfaction, that can help ease um, discontent. So an example could be an, a view, I don't have to be perfect. Or this problem does not have to be solved this moment. You know, something like that. So what are some views, general views, that can help um, relieve some of the stress or discomfort of our lives? And again, we'll do the same thing going around the circle. One person speaks and then the next. Thanks. So thank you. And we'd like to spend just the last few minutes here hearing from you about how was that, A, to break up into a small group, and B, did you learn anything about some of your views or intentions that may be having an impact on the amount of ease or the amount of unease or stress in your life? And we'll use the microphones. So there's one there and one there. I'm I'm not sure this is entirely directly related, but in terms of the first question, um, talking about views that that cause suffering, um, I liked it when it was like struggle. Struggle was one of the words that the synonyms that came up for suffering. But the 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 problem I keep having is that. I don't know where the line is to accept and walk away. Just try to try to say, you know, the world is that way. And it's 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 fine if like the souffle has fallen and everybody laughs about it, that's not a problem. But like where do you keep struggling to effect a change that you think is maybe valuable in the world that, that is causing you suffering? And or or making some kind of change like that, and so and this is the I know we come, we have these other topics that we're trying to talk about, but this is the one that keeps coming back and gnawing at me. And I know it's probably based on the fact that I'm holding these various viewpoints, but I can't. I maybe I'm clinging to the idea that I'm still right about them, but I don't know if you should just walk away and stop trying to fix things. And I don't know when, where you know when something should be fixed or not, and what fixing is. <laughs> Thank you. Shinkwan, did you have something? No? I think this is wonderful, a question. Um, I'll say one thing here. I think there's a lot of things that could be said. But one uh, thing with uh, practice, we do start to see, oh, there... Um, as you said, when do you walk away? So that implies that you think that there's a, a choice. And that's beautiful that you're starting to say, like, oh, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. Maybe it can be different. But just because you have this idea that things can be different, or perhaps you can even see, doesn't mean it's so easy to put down, right? As you're also saying, like, oh, I actually am still struggling here with this. And then maybe our practice can point towards Oh, how do we? What's our relationship with the idea that we're struggling with this? Can it be okay that we don't really know the answer? You don't. You're not quite sure. When should you still um, try to fix things? If I understood your question correctly, and when should you just be able to put them down? 
Well, maybe something to think about, is it okay to not know? Is it okay to sometimes um, be trying to change things and realize, oh, you know what, this isn't working. This isn't working for me. It's not working for people around me. But I'm not able to put it down. And then just to kind of be with um, that experience of being uncomfortable and not exactly knowing what to do or whether or how to put it down. I'm offering this because it would um, be disingenuous for me to sit up here and say, oh, I know exactly what you should do. (laughs) You should do this, you should do that, right? It doesn't work, even though sometimes perhaps we wish it were straightforward. So I'll um, just offer that, that often um, we think that the practice is how can we solve this problem, but that problem maybe can't be solved in the way that we are approaching it. And so then we kind of have to back up and say, oh, can we be okay that it's not being solved with this particular approach? And just that shift away from trying to keep on solving it, just that movement may cause something else to shift. Maybe something else can change. I can't make any promises, but it's just to kind of look at it from a different perspective. Um, so we might notice in doing this practice that a lot of the a new kind of training of our mind and our hearts is uh, not so much in the doing part. We're, we get a lot of training to do in our lives, but this practice is kind of in the less doing. So a lot of times we're being asked to kind of put things down, putting down the reactivity, putting down the opinions, putting down all those temporarily, albeit, but allows for some space for maybe some wisdom to come when we're not so busy doing. So, um, that's so vague, and I hate it. People might want to say it's so vague. But it becomes clear the more you practice it, is my guess. There's a lot more energy freed up when you're not so intent on having to know the right answer or do the right thing. So, uh, some, something shifts. And yes. <laughs> so I wanted to say thank you to everybody here, and um, we'll be here next week. Also, is um, we're going to talk about right speech uh, next week, as well as a mindfulness of emotions. And you have a handout. If they didn't take the intro course and want the handout from us. Yeah, so um, Shinkwan talked about the review of mindfulness of the body. And f- during the course, there's a handout. And if you'd like, you can um, take one of those here. Otherwise, we hope to see you next week. Thank you. <laughs>